Hello, friends, and welcome back to With Great People, the podcast for high-performance teams. I'm Richard Kasparowski. Our special guest today is Steve Wolf. Steve is co-author of the research on team emotional intelligence, which has been very influential in my work with teams. To support this podcast, visit my website, kasparowski.com. Hello, Steve. It's so good to see you. Good to see you. And what else could we add on to that introduction? What else can you tell us about yourself? What else can I tell you about myself? Just very, very briefly, I have two careers, basically. I started out as a hardware engineer, and then I moved over into management, got my doctorate, and started studying teams. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that for like 25 years now. All right, cool. So this is the podcast about teams and high-performance teams. And as you know, I've got this little outline we follow. And I like to ask people about the best team they were ever on in their entire life. And, and we've talked a lot together. You know what I'm talking about when I say team. It's, it's not mm -hmm. necessarily a work team. It's any group of two or more people with shared goals. What's the best team that you were ever a member of in your life? So I must, I must say that there haven't been a lot of them. But one that comes to mind is something that I was leading about 30 years ago. It was a long, long time ago. And it was a, it was a program management team. And we were developing a new iteration of a computer. And so that's, that's what the team was. All right. Well, tell me more. I want to know everything about this team, the... <laughs> the computer, the people, how many people, uh, exactly what were you doing as this program management team? What was the work? What was the product? So, so I used to work at Prime Computer mm -hmm. and um, we were developing an iteration to a product that had already been released. And it turns out that there was um, a couple of iterations that were happening. Mine was one, and I'll talk a little bit about more later why that's important to understand but so this was the program management team and it involved all the people needed to get the computer out interestingly um, it included many more people than typical because my uh, inkling back then was the more the merrier and so we had, it was quite a large team. I forget exactly how many, but it was probably 15 or 20 people at that point in time. And, um, you know, I just invited everybody that I thought would make a difference to getting this product out. So that's essentially what we were doing. And it was, it was a pretty short product project, um, you know, not as long as developing the full computer, but... Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else you'd like to know? <laughs> There's so much I want to know. Um, another thing I, I, I want to know is um, if you took yourself back to that team and, and like really re-experienced doing that work together with those folks, mm -hmm. what, what would it feel like or what does it feel like if you take yourself back to it? What does it feel like within yourself? And, and what is one word that you could use to describe that sensation? So if there's one word that I would use to describe that sensation, I, I would call it exciting. 
Although, although if you ask me, what does it feel like? That's a more complex answer because the emotions are quite mixed. So there's feelings of exhilaration and excitement as things are actually getting done and getting done a lot faster than they thought they, they would be done. And I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, as new things are being, um, I want to say discovered, that's not quite the word, right word, but new ways of doing things are being developed as the team is innovating how to get this thing done faster. Um, that's very exciting. But in the process, there's a lot of, let's call it tension. It's probably concern and angst and, and stuff like that. That is also um, part of what was going on. But, and I know we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I think um, that was actually a really critical piece to the success of the project all right in the way that that was worked with uh, ang angst is one of these funny words i'm i'm never sure exactly what it means even even when i look it up in a dictionary when you're saying <laughs> angst what what do you mean what do i mean by angst um so so let me just give you an, a little bit more background so i mentioned there was two two updates to this computer that were being done. The other update was scheduled to come out two months before the update that I was working on. So when I became project, project manager, I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why are we gonna release an update and then two months later release another update? We need to get these all done at the same time. And so I didn't go and say, okay, let's slow down the other update. I said, we're gonna speed up this update and we're gonna get this done at the same time as the, as the other one. Well, I remember the first meeting when I called everybody together. This is the epitome of what you would call angst. I called them in and they had already, um, you know, gotten the later release date. And I said, well, we're going to do this two months sooner. And the looks on their face, the, the like, well, wait a minute, we can't do that. That's not, it's not possible. What? That's what I call angst. That kind of, that kind of concern and, and, I don't know if tension is the right word, but yeah. Um, yeah. All right, and I and I love the idea of of um, keeping to the the time rhythm of a release mm -hmm. and fitting as much good stuff into it as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't know anything about agile back then, but yes. Agile was barely in a, a seedling of idea back then, and 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 you had you had a little bit of that seedling. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right. So this team of of program managers working on this 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 product that you're building, this computer, um, 
how do you know it was a great team? So first, subjectively, what was going on within you and around the team? Things that things that you could sense, but but maybe not exactly measure. So at the time, um, what what was happening was people were finding ways to get things done. Mm -hmm. People were innovating new ideas. Um, and retrospectively, part of the way I know it's a good team, and there's like one other team that I would say was really amazing, is I still keep in touch with the uh, people. Yeah. So we were building amazing relationships in that team as we were going through this process, which was stressful at the time. Um, but the outcome was we got it done earlier. It was, you know, accepted and people are still in touch with each other. There was, you know, the tensions didn't lead to broken relationships. It actually built the relationships. All right. That's so interesting that by doing the product, by doing this project together, building this product, delivering more than you thought you could, faster than you thought you could, you built really good relationships with each other. So so strong that even 30 years later, you're still in touch with each other. Yeah, indeed. And, yeah. and what about, you mentioned a couple of objective things, like you got it done. <laughs> you got it done early. Uh, what other objective senses or objective senses what other measures do you have that this was a great team what 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 objectively empirically that we could that we could look at from the outside um that the team was a great team yeah. other beyond the accomplishment the accomplishment itself definitely an objective so, display so, so i mean the team energy. yeah so i think the accomplishment of the team it certainly is one indication that it was a great team. And I, and I do think that the enduring relationships and, you know, the ability of the people on that team to work together on future products as well, I think, you know, makes it a great team. A lot of times you can get a team to do something and do it quickly under a lot of stress and people hate each other afterwards and can't really work together but that wasn't really the case here. So, and I think that's really an important outcome for a team. You can't do something no matter how well it's done and then never be able to work together again. All right, so you had people who could work together again afterward. What were some of the concrete behaviors that you, that you engaged in together that helped make this such a great team? So if, if I had to suggest or, or, you know, mention the most important one, I would call it understanding. And that was something that um, was throughout the whole process. And that first day, like I, like I mentioned to you when I told them, oh, we're doing this in two thirds of the time, and I didn't, I, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really know what I was doing back then. So, so this was not intentional. It was 
just an instinct that I realized I had at the time. So, so picture this meeting and I'm telling them, okay, we're doing this in two thirds of the time. And everybody's, like, well, no, that can't happen. That we, we're never, we've never. And I just said, okay, so who, who doesn't think this could happen? Okay. Somebody raises their hand. Well, well, why? What's, what is going to get in your way? And they would say, well, X, Y, Z is going to get in your way. And I'd say, okay, so if I can remove that, and if I can do ABC, would you be able to get it done? Uh, yeah, we probably could. Okay, done. Who's next? And I just went around, and that is what I did on that first meeting. And then throughout the project, there was that understanding um, because we were trying to do things that weren't done before. And so part of the success of the project was all the people that I invited to it as well. Because at that time, um, project management at Prime, it involved marketing, it involved engineering, which included hardware and software. And that was pretty much, that was pretty much it. It didn't involve manufacturing. It didn't involve the salespeople. And my experience said, uh, we need those people. And it turns out that manufacturing was a really key, key piece of this because trying to get the thing into a workable box is not something you can throw over the wall later. And so, and so having that manufacturing person there was critical and getting the people in the same room to understand each other's concerns and issues, right? Because without that, you just say, oh, those manufacturing people, they're just a pain. They just, you know, they always want to do things that are, that are easier. They're always you know, telling us they can't be done, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or that didn't happen. And, and actually, one of the other things around understanding um, and again, remember, this was a long time ago, and this was not an Agile project. So I think Agile people get this now. But back then, we didn't have connection to the customer. Engineers didn't go out into the field, to understand the customer. I, I did. I said, I want to go out there. Not only that, but I did something which I still am amazed actually they let me do. And that was I took and I got, I printed up a set of feedback cards and I put it in the back of the cabinet. And I had the customer send me feedback cards. It was, it was freaking amazing. <laughs> and, and here's, here's a, just an example of what happened as a result. Back in those days, these computers, there were many computers, they would be in a very, you know, dark computer room. I mean, computer rooms are not stereotypically dark, but when you've got the cabinets and the light's not right there, 
you open the back door, you can't see inside. Yeah, it's like the you back know? door and is a narrow wall and the light, there's yeah. shadows on it. Yeah. And back then, when you looked inside the computer, you saw wires all over the place. And if you wanted to do anything, you had to unplug the wires and plug them back in. And it was a nightmare for people. And so one of the feedback cards said, you know, we need a light. Now, I said, yeah, that's a really amazing idea. And we actually got like a refrigerator light put into the cabinet. How perfect. So that the, yeah. And so it was that connection and understanding the customer as well. That was right. really, really critical. So I, I, I heard at least four concrete things that, that you did differently on this team that, that led to, that, that contributed to the success. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a really diverse group of contributors together, more different kinds of roles that people play than previously, mm -hmm. including people in manufacturing and all different parts of the company. You asked them what's going to get in your way. And you, and you took steps to get those things out of the way so that people could actually mm -hmm. do their work and, and be successful at it. You went out into the field to meet with customers and ask them what they were looking for and what would, what would, what would help them with the product. And, you, and this feedback card idea, this is such a cool idea. I'm, I'm picturing mm -hmm. it like, like when I was a kid, you'd get the cereal box and there's a yeah. down through the cereal you know, and, you, and you pull a toy out. And, and it's like there was this little treasure in the back of the computer you'd open the door and without even knowing that there was going to be a treasure there there it was a feedback card and you got feedback from them and, I got and, and you and, and you amazing. and you implemented some of their ideas how cool it was it was cool and actually there's one other thing that i didn't mention um which turns out to be really extremely important and it's a finding that comes out of um, the research that we did on team emotional intelligence many years later as well. And that is the proactivity in getting the support because what I did was when I needed something to happen, I didn't wait for the executives and the managers to solve my problem. I went out and I got the support from them and solved the issue on, on my own. And it turns out that that's really a super critical um, piece of what really highly effective teams do. Um, and just, just a, a, a little bit of an aside, going to the research and the team emotional intelligence, the difference between the high performing teams and the average performing teams when we did all the research, one of the things that came out that's not in our model and in our survey is the external support. That's the only thing. We didn't put it in there because we did a qualitative part of the study. And what we found was all of the high-performing teams proactively went out and got that support. And proactive problem solving is part of the model. None, none, zero. It was incredible of the average performing teams had any comments about doing that. Yeah, and so we we kept it in there as part of proactivity and took it out as a separate thing because we didn't wanna give people any, you know, 
opportunity to play victim. Oh, see, they're not supporting us because ah, it's really it's really their doing in the first place by being right. proactive and getting that support. Okay. And I did okay. that way back then as well. So, like the way you critical. get executive support is by proactively seeking it. No, absolutely, it's not something yeah. that's just gifted to you. It's something that you that you go out and obtain. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. And and, and I I want to know more and more and more. Uh, how, okay, so so there's one example. Well, exactly what what would that look like? How what did you do? How could other people? proactively seek that support i mean it it's it's one thing to say proactively seek support mm -hmm. it's another thing to know how to do it so what are the steps how, how do people do that so so the first thing is you, you need to understand what's important to the executives right i, I was a little bit lucky in the sense that this project had their visibility. So it wasn't just something that was happening somewhere in the organization that they didn't care about. So, so that was, you know, a little bit luck of the draw. But given that, I would, I would go to them and I say, look, here's an issue. Here's what we, what we need. If we don't get this, we're not going to be able to get this done on time. And so I need your need your support. And so, um, you know, it was pretty much that simple. And, you know, I would go to what I would do is I would go to the um, the director of engineering, which was which was um, the person who was in charge of, you know, our department. And if there was something that needed attention outside of him, I'd go to him and ask him to um, ask somebody higher up. Um, but I also had the year of the people higher up too, because they were in the same building. So I'd run over there and talk to them as well. Right, right. All right. So there's 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 one thing that as as, as advice for listeners and viewers. What else would you would you suggest that people do to, to reproduce the, the, the kind of success that you had with this team? Um, what else? And, and this is like, you know, wh what should people do? Uh, this is this is like, uh, you know, like, like we just said, not just get more support from executives, but exactly what are the steps? How do they do it? Yeah. Um, so. So I'm not sure I can answer the exact steps. I think you just need to go out and, and ask. And I think, as I said, the important thing around executives is really understanding what they need. So I can give you an example from some work that I did, not this team, but that talks about that. It was a manufacturing team. And this is, this is freaking amazing. So what this team, so, so this team, was responsible for the quality of the products that it produced. And it needed a new machine. Capital equipment, expensive, you know, tens of thousands, if not more dollars. And this was a very proactive team 
And so what it did was it went and it made a pitch to management. But it didn't just say, well, look, we need a new machine because our quality is going to be going down. They knew that management, what was important to them at that time and what they were focusing on was safety. So they framed the pitch in terms of safety. They went and said, look, this machine is not safe. As opposed to it's producing crap as well. Okay. Um, and they got their money. They got their money. Um, the same team, this is a manufacturing small, petite woman who needed something from an engineer and wasn't getting any results. She saw the engineer. This is, the, I mean, this is a true story. She saw the engineer headed down the hall go into the men's room. She camped outside the men's room. Uh -huh. She waited for him to come out of the men's room, accosted him <laughs> friendly, and told him what he needed, and she got it. Right. That's being proactive. All right. Yeah. Nice. She didn't just wait for him. She went and got what she needed. Right. Now, what other advice do you have? for viewers and listeners to get that kind of team? So, so this, this advice um, is retrospectively based on my work on teams. Um, so one of the most frustrating things to me when I see work being done on teams, um, and I remember when I was a doctoral student studying teams, I just, I just almost went through the roof after a while. And to put it in technical terms, and I'll try and simplify it, um, you have to treat the team as a system. And what that means essentially is that behavior in the, in the team is a function, people's behavior in the team is a function of not just the person, but the environment. And the, the environment in my thinking is the culture. And so one of the things that drives me totally crazy is you read stuff. What I was reading back then was, oh, really, really great teams have a lot of trust. And now you read, really, really great teams. There's really a lot of psychological safety. Please, please give me the fairy dust that I can sprinkle on those teams to make them have trust in psychological safety. If you have that fairy dust, I want it because it doesn't exist. Those things come out of the interactions. They emerge out of the what people are doing and what you really need to know is what do people need to do? How do they need to interact in order to create those things? And nobody's focusing on that and, and not nobody, but people tend not to focus on that because the emergent properties, the trust is visible. 
I can see it. People can talk about it. Dysfunctional behavior or conflict is visible. People always want to do, you know, Myers-Briggs and understand individual styles and they want to do, and they want to do conflict resolution. That drives me crazy too. Not that those are not important. They are important, but not unless you've built a cultural foundation to support them. And in my work, I, I mean, you know me, I'm a rigorous scientific engineer, right? I don't use words like magical very often, <laughs> but in my 20, 25 years of work, when you get at those cultural elements, magic happens. I have seen conflict disappear, no conflict resolution skills training. I have seen dysfunctional behavior disappear. Team has pulled the person out, done all of the things that you're told to do. None of it really worked. As soon as the team got to the driving issue, that, con that dysfunctional behavior just, just disappeared, never came back. And what that driving issue was, by the way, was, was there was an energy that this person had and a concern, and the team was working well. They didn't want to break what they had. And so to hear the concern was difficult for them because they psychologically, unconsciously thought it was going to break the team. They didn't even realize they were doing it. Once they realized it and they could hear the concern, that energy dissipated and that behave, bad behavior just went away. So, so that's, that's one piece of advice. Treat the team as a system. Remember, people's individual behavior is a function of the environment. And just, as, just to go along with that, anytime I'm working with a team, if the team says, oh, yeah, you know, we have someone who's, you know, dysfunctional, is talking too much, is not contributing, is slacking off, whatever, you name it, the problem. My first, my first retort to them is, oh, so what are you as a team doing to create that behavior? That's the first thing I ask them. They look at me, right? Because it's almost always something the team is doing to create that behavior. So that's, that's, a, that's a really important piece of advice. The next piece of advice that I would, I would have is, um, as the saying goes, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. And I think we think too big most of the time. We want to make a change. And, and, you know, where you see this a lot, not so much in teams, uh, I mean, you see it in teams, but, you know, you see it in organizations. There is an organizational change program. It's like, oh, please. It's, I mean, I don't have to say much because I'm sure everybody has a reaction to that, but it's a disaster. And, and the same goes in teams, right? You can't make your team instantly awesome overnight. 
Do one little thing at a time. Experiment. Keep things keep things top of mind. So if you want, so for example, I talked about understanding. So ask people, you know, do you feel understood? Do you know, notice if people are right and focus on that and have the team talk about it for 10 minutes. You know, what do we want to do? Do we want to understand each other better? How can we do that? And just keep focusing on it. Maybe you have on your agenda, you know, something that you said you're going to do around understanding at each meeting, keep it visible. And then the other incredibly powerful thing, once you do that, I call it, I, I call it a new year's resolution. So you want to understand each other. Okay. We want people to speak up and let us know what they're thinking. Okay. Well, that's never going to work. That's a New Year's resolution. And so you need what I call a tool or a catalyst. The team needs to develop something to help it. And one of my favorite examples that I give to teams, and especially around understanding, is, you know, they'll say, I want to, we want to bring up the elephants in the room. Okay. New Year's resolution, I actually give each member a pink elephant that you can buy from Etsy or put an elephant icon on the desk. And what that does is a couple of things. One is it's a visible reminder. So every time they see that elephant or hold that elephant, they remember, oh yeah, we were supposed to speak up. But speaking up is socially difficult. The team is in the middle of a conversation and they need to, you know, get work done. And now all of a sudden I'm going to say, oh, wait a minute, there's something that I need to. And it's like your team members are going to go, what? We're busy. And so it's really hard for people to just interrupt. But what's not hard is for people to take their pink elephant and just just hold it up, the team can see it, and the team can make a choice. Are we too busy to acknowledge our teammate? Or do we follow through on our agreement to understand each other and talk about these things and ask what is on your mind? And they always do the latter. And so having that tool turns your New Year's resolution into a reality. So that's another really um, important piece of advice. And, and the final one that I would say is, there's a lot of things that, that teams um, may observe and wanna do. And, and one of the ones that drives me crazy is at the beginning of most meetings, um, you know, a facilitator will say to the team, well, what are the ground rules we want? And that's, that's another example of not having a tool to make them come true. So nobody ever, they never, nobody ever follows through on them. But you get a whole list of things. You get, 
some important things, you get some not so important things. Not that if the team wants it, it's not important. But, so I'm not saying not to include those, but the intuitively non-obvious things that get to the meat of the culture that creates the emergent properties I talked about, psychological safety, are not obvious. They're not obvious. It's not just not having your cell phone out. It's really more complex than that. And so you need a map. You really need a map to help focus your attention on what you're observing, what you want to uh, agree about in terms of interaction, and make sure that you add that to whatever else is important to you. So what do I what what do we focus on? So 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 to some extent, team emotional intelligence is a map. Okay, I'm working on another framework now, which I call Inspired Teams, which incorporates agile into team emotional intelligence. So it's a combination of team emotional intelligence and agile. And so not only do you get the collaboration from team emotional intelligence, you get the accelerated value creation from um, agile. So they're melded together now. And so if I ask you, well, what are the norms that you need in your culture? You know, people could come up with a list and you'd probably have some really good ones, but you'd probably be missing a lot. That's really important. And so it's just a framework. It's just, uh, you know, a framework of cultural norms and habits that are important that we know from research are important to creating. And in terms of inspired teams, there's four outcomes. And so they're important for creating energy passion, motivation. They're important for creating innovation, learning, breakthroughs. They're important for creating execution, creating value quickly. And they're important for transparency, which is the way I look at it, making sure you're not operating in a fog, right? So what are the norms you need to accomplish those? that's the map you need. All right. All right. I can totally picture this now. It's like, it's like asking one of your kids, what do you want to do today? Or where do you want to go? And they mm -hmm. don't even know what's possible versus, you know, right. here's, here, here's the map, literally a map. And there's a pond over here. There's woods over there. There's a playground over there. Now we've got some more concrete ideas about what are the possibilities. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Cool. It's a good analogy. Why, thank you. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to share with viewers and listeners? Um, the, only, the only other thing that is really exciting that I'm doing right now, and I call it, hey, team, what's up with that? Oh, yeah. Hey, Steve, what's up with that? Hey, what's up with that? And what I've discovered, and this goes back to taking small steps, is every team member is responsible for the culture. Everything you do or do not do 
as a team member is forming the culture or reinforcing the culture of your team. Most people suffer. A lot of people have been on bad teams, painful teams. Those are most of the ones I've been on in the work environment. And what do people do? They sit silently and suffer. Hey team, what's up with that? Is a method to give voice to your observations in a way that will not um, create defensiveness, will not create backlash. You make an observation and then the team can decide how it wants to operate. And one of the ones that people can relate to that actually a colleague of mine sort of introduced this, this situation. Have you ever gone to team meetings and people are showing up late and there might be one habitual person who's always coming in late? Well, that was the case in this particular team and nobody would say anything. A new, and this turned out to be an agile team, a new scrum master came into that team, really good one, and she observed this happening. And all she said was, and I don't know if she used hey team, but hey team, you know, I notice Jose is coming in late and nobody's saying anything. What's up with that? that? That's all you need to say. You make that observation and then the team can decide what to do with it. You're not evaluating or assessing. It's tricky to do this really well. You can't say, you know, hey, it's not acceptable to come in late. That's not going to work. And so you make, she made that observation and here's what happens. You go back to understanding. It turns out Jose had to bring his kids to school. And when there was traffic, he couldn't make it from the school to the team meeting on time. He was embarrassed about it. He didn't want that to happen. He didn't want to burden his the team with his problem. And I have seen, and by the way, that's another piece of advice. I have seen the biggest issue that creates problems in teams is what I call a lack of a shared reality. Everybody's operating under their own reality. And the first place I saw this was when I was a professor and I'd have my students writing journals and papers. Each team member was trying their best to be the best teammate. And they were all living in their own reality. And those realities were creating amazing problems. And I actually created a, an exercise to, to solve that problem, peer feedback exercise, which upon telling the students that they were gonna do this, created all kinds of angst. After they did it, they'd come up to me and say, how come we didn't do that sooner? How come we don't do it more often? Because it solves that shared reality um, a problem. 
And so, and so, you know, he came, he didn't want to burden the team. Once she asked that question, he spoke up. He shared his reality with the team. The team could then move the meeting, provide support to that team member, which is another norm that's really important, caring. I call that caring. Just think about the emotional bond that having your team recognize your issue and move a meeting to to help you creates simple, simple, simple little action, all instigated because somebody made an observation and the team could then work with it. That's what Hey Team, What's Up With That is about, is helping everyone because everyone's responsible to make that observation that's going to matter. That's a beautiful tool and and so easy for people to to try. It's very easy. Easy, small steps and powerful. All right. Thank you so much for that. And Steve, if, if viewers and listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a way to do that? So, yes, I have a website and it's um, stephenwolf.com. You can see the spelling of my name above my shoulder there. S-T-E-V-E-N-W-O-L-F-F, two Fs, dot com. And you can go there and you can find my email address. You can uh, sign up to a mailing um, list, which I don't really send out a lot of stuff. So... Don't be surprised if you don't hear from me very often. Um, and my email address is just steve at stephenwolf.com um, if you want just that. And, and I do have to say this website was created when I was thinking about doing speaking. I haven't updated it. So don't judge the website, but just <laughs> use the information on it. We are not your judge. Uh, before we before we started recording the podcast, you and I were talking about it, and, and we had this <laughs> this sort of agile idea: get it done, get it, it done, better. yes, then make it better. <laughs> yes, and I and I appreciate oh. that agile advice from from oh, and, and feedback from the field. Like, if nobody wants it to be different, then it's perfect. But <laughs> somebody asks, then then you yeah. know. <laughs> well, it definitely needs more on there not just the speaking part. Steve I, I think your I, 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 I think your website needs a refrigerator light like when you open the door uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> if I could only figure out how to put that on <laughs> well Steve thank you so much for joining us today this has been a lot of fun reconnecting and learning so much more from you thanks I really appreciate it well you are so welcome thank you so much for having me uh, my pleasure And listeners and viewers, remember to support this podcast. Visit my website, kasparowski.com.